and welcome to That Happens, the show. That's it, just the show. That's the intro today. Uh, well, what's up, everybody? Uh, oh, my God. We got a good show for everybody, in my opinion. Um, and it's it's probably because it started early, right? Right, Kevin? Or should I say Blastmaster? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. We were having some technical problems, so we just jumped right into the show tonight. I think something about having to wait the often, you know, 10, 20 minutes or so before the show starts, it really, like grinds my psyche or something i don't know like i start like excited and ready and then i'm just gone but i did call you the blast master and that's not because i'm testing new nicknames for you kevin it's because that's a nickname that was given you by a a, a powerful creator on this very platform um and that powerful creator is here today with us and i don't want to you know take too much more time to just get into this uh but i will actually <laughs> kevin did you get the email i sent you this week uh, oh, with the music? With the songs, yeah. Yes, yes. If if we went into any of those bits, you could cue up some of those musics or whatever? I could, yes. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, so <laughs> back to my introduction. <laughs> uh, cartoonist style icon? Uh, Jim Mafood. Uh, it's Mafood, right? Jim Mafood is here. Yes, yeah. Mafood is the correct pronunciation, by the way. But my family has kind of recognized my food as well but my food is the proper rooted in middle eastern uh uh speak i guess i would call it so thank you for the intro uh Spencer. yeah and i i'm sorry that i went through the trouble of learning the right pronunciation only to, to butcher it but yeah i don't know i i wonder uh, this just makes me think like i you know i wonder if there's just this uh this like american white tendency to just like oh the emphasis has to be on the first syllable right because that's that's what i assume that comes from is like let's just stress the first syllable this is a great line of questioning i'm sure you have a lot of great interesting answers answers for uh no but uh, i don't know so you're a cartoonist right when did you were you always drawing and stuff uh like uh how did how did how did it get like from uh something to like a real passion and uh obsession maybe i don't know yeah yeah i started drawing when i was a kid got obsessed with comic books really early on and um around seventh or eighth grade kids in school started telling me that i was good at drawing and that kind of like getting a reaction from people that was kind of like oh i think this could be a thing that i could do and i started really pursuing um sending samples to like marvel and dc comics when i was like <laughs> 13, 14 years old, like this was all pre-internet. So I would basically go to the newsstand and write down the addresses of Marvel and DC <laughs> from the comic books and the other publishers and just photocopy samples of my terrible work and send it out <laughs> to the publishers. But the publishers at that time would still send you a photocopied like rejection letter. Like Marvel would send you a letter that had like Spider-Man on the envelope which was exciting mm. in itself, getting the Spider-Man envelope. And it would be like a photocopied letter from like Stan Lee, Stan Lee. And he'd be like, hey, polish your skills and try again. Like we, we don't, we can't use you right now, but keep trying Excelsior, St Stan Lee. And it, you know, it was like probably his secretary from his, his secretary's office or something. But so I had all these rejection letters and then, I eventually met these guys in St. Louis where I was growing up 
that were publishing their own comic books, black and white, small print runs type stuff. And long story short, they kind of took me on as their apprentice when I was like 15 years old. So these dudes showed me how comics were made. So again, I had no knowledge of any of this because no internet. So they were like, this is like 91, 92. So these older guys were like, here's the paper you use. Here's the materials. Here's the tools. Here's how the proportions of it work. And um, yeah, that was kind of like my training ground. And then went to art school for college and started self-publishing and then eventually started getting work and that and now i'm here talking to you yeah that's awesome so <laughs> when you were drawing early on were you drawing like comic book characters comic book panel kind of layouts or anything or were you just drawing and then and that kind of got you more towards like drawing that level I, I was drawing characters and copying stuff out of comic books and then eventually i started telling my own comic book stories mm-hmm. so just getting like loose leaf paper and doing like my own spider-man or ninja turtle comics doing like five six page stories and just kind of learning the language of um how do you tell stories with just pictures in these squares this format of comics is a very interesting form of storytelling you're really trying to um portray this illusion to the viewer of motion and story is happening in static images that are in sequence so how do you pull that off? Like how, what angles do you choose for your drawings? What storytelling devices do you use? What filmmaking devices can you tie in with this stuff? So it's one thing to be a really good drawer or artist or draftsman or someone who knows how to draw cars or vehicles really well, but it's a whole other thing to take all those elements and then storytell with them in this form of comics. So it really like... Honestly, man, I've been in it for like 25 years and I'm still trying to learn all the, all these formulas for how to like make this art form work. It's it's really intriguing. It's like it's very challenging but also really exciting to me uh, on like how you can push the limits of 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 this art, this craft. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting you you talk about filmmaking and stuff because like it's a similar kind of look where it's like, what do I want this kind of panel to look is kind of like, what do I want, you know, the shot to look like, but it's just, yeah, it's you're you're limited so much by, you know, having to force motion, you know, the the tricks people to pull to like imply motion with, you know, large arcing like swipes to indicate like a punch or something like someone has to figure that out and then refine it and refine it until like, you know, at a glance, it's like, oh, that guy's punching him and stuff. You know, it's it's really impressive. I don't know. I just had a kind of I'm basically the same as you, you know, (laughs) no, in school, I like to draw a lot and I was never very good. And I kind of stopped drawing once probably that same point you started getting positive reinforcement where it's like, I, I started to see the kids that were actually good at drawing, you know? And I was like, well, 
I could, I could never. And then that kind of just started discouraging me and, and stuff. Um, I didn't do too much. I, I would do little kind of like Sunday style comic strips, you know, more kind of comedic joke vehicle kind of comics um, with like stick figures and stuff. And, but you know, I never really got too into it, but I remember there was a time when I was pretty deep into drawing and I was also into like Pokemon and learning oh, about, Oh, there's anime and manga and stuff. And my friend was also into, he started printing off from like uh, a, like a photocopier store like just uh one layout of panels you know and then we could like draw comics in that and that was a lot of fun but you know i yeah i got i got kind of uh, i just you know i i have a hard time with uh dealing with rejection and stuff but uh so where did no, you grow I understand. Up in, oh go I, ahead sorry i was gonna say i understand like rejection I, I mean that was kind of the thing i learned early on was like this is making a living off your talent no matter what it is like music filmmaking, comics, whatever. It's like such a challenging thing that you really do have to kind of like temper yourself in steel of, of like being able to handle rejection and people shit talking. And luckily I came up again, like before there were social media and like message words, because it was just like getting rejected by an editor at a Comic-Con was one thing. Cause that's their job. They're a professional. So we wait in lines to show our samples. If they said, hey, kid, you're not ready. Try again. Here's my card. Stay in touch with me. It's not a big deal. But if strangers across the planet are talking shit about like what you do, what comes out of you, what matters to you, that is a different level of rejection. But I say, fuck those people and just do what you want to do anyway. Like, those are just strangers on a digital interface so whatever you're probably never going to meet them anyway so yeah exactly just like the freaking <laughs> shrub home video discord you fucks oh you shit. stupid <laughs> fucks no uh <laughs> but, uh anyway uh but but so where did you go to school where did you go to college or whatever you said you went to art school or something so where did you grow up yeah uh, i grew up in st louis and then i moved up to Kansas City when I was 18 to go to Kansas City Art Institute, which was not, it was an okay school, but I'll put it this way. Like I got really lucky and there was a group of guys two years ahead of me in the illustration program that were all doing their own comics. And they took me under their wing. And those are the guys that I learned everything from. And I still had to do school for four years, but after we were done with our school assignments at night, me and these weirdo dudes would be in this big dilapidated house together as roommates grinding away on our comics all night. And that's really what I wanted to do. So um, we eventually all started to get work. And by senior year, I got like my first job with Marvel, like right before graduation. So I was kind of like, holy shit, this timing is working out great. I just can't fuck this up. Right. Like this is my big shot. So now I can't mess this up and hopefully I'll be okay. So um, the other interesting thing to tie this back to Shroud home video, I've talked about this before <laughs> on my show, but I became pen pals with Rob Schraub in like 95 when I was in college because him and Dan had fireman press and they were putting out the scud comics and Lacosa Nostroid, which Dan was writing. And so I was sending Rob my self-published comics, and he was taking the time to write me back, like physically mail me letters saying, 
keep going. I like your stuff. Your, your shit's cool. You know? And, um, I eventually met those guys at a comic con in St. Louis in 1996. I just so happened to have my booth right next to theirs. So I was like, Oh shit, Rob, Dan, I I'm that weird kid that is, has been writing you. And I do this girl scouts comic and Rob, you know, was like, Oh shit, you're great. Let's stay in touch. And so that kind of, um, that kind of solidified our, our friendship through all of us self-publishing our own black and white comics. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I, cool. uh, I, I remember when, um, when I, I actually, I don't know. It's so weird. I, I just, there's a lot of light parts of my life that have intersected with various works of like Dan and, and Rob and stuff. But yeah, when I was in high school and stuff, my friend had a bunch of scud comics and I, I read, I read most of the ones he had, but I, I just never really understood how comics worked. Like, I don't know. I, I guess because of it, I was like a gamer. I just never like, I thought of like comic book stores as places to buy game stuff. You know? Oh, sure. Sure. And I, I, when I was a kid, my brother was into comics and, um, I like them, but there was a big incident where almost all of his comics got destroyed because he left like a can of soda in a hot car and they like it exploded oh, over him. Oh, yeah. Shit. So like okay. at that point, we basically never had real comics anymore. And that was like probably about the time when I probably would have got into a more I, I kind of we had those Marvel trading cards and stuff. And oh, I really sure. like those. You know, but it's it's way different and stuff. But okay, so you so, you had a um, oh go ahead. Oh, real quick, I had a question for you. Um, yeah, so yeah. You you're a gaming guy. Did you when you discovered like D and D? Were you also drawing your own versions of of the characters that you were role playing, or uh, did did, you, did your drawing associate with your love of like D and D and role playing? a little bit it's interesting yeah because that was another thing that i probably might have gone into if i was good at uh podcasting but but yeah like um i was never what i would consider good enough to really draw human forms and i don't know something about me just i, I don't know i i like aliens i like monsters and ever since i realized oh you could like be different things i was always like never interested in human forms very much and probably because like i couldn't draw hands or something you know right. um but so most of my figures were kind of like little monsters and stuff but i would that's the thing is like i played a lot of pretend as a kid and our pretend would be a lot more like dungeons and dragons as kind of like i kept pretending and got a little bit older not like too much older but like i was pretending a lot and it was we were tell stories and stuff and my drawing was similar where like the creatures i would draw would be like tribes and they'd live in like an area and i draw the map where they lived and then i draw another tribe in another area and that's kind of like DD world building you know and oh, yeah. and so like uh, right before D and I started playing. Um, it was it was becoming a trend to read these uh, Redwall books, and they had like a, it's like a very fantasy milieu, and you know the, there was a Redwall Abbey, and there was the citizens of Redwall Abbey, and oftentimes they were fighting other forces and stuff. And so for some reason, my friends would just draw up armies. They'd be like, "I got three foxes and twenty mouse warriors and stuff." And so like we would kind of draw that stuff, and I would draw that stuff, and then that same group of people just were like, "Hey, we just found this book called like Dungeons and Dragons," oh, and so shit. that okay. kind of 
yeah we were way too young to read the books it was second edition at the time and it was like before third edition came out and we did not know how to play but you know enthusiasm is what you really need so we would try our best and really mess up the rules but it was a lot of fun and um you know again since i didn't know what it was when the guy who knew how to play and didn't have all the books like when he wasn't around you know we would just do more kind of pretend that was that was really just role playing we would sit at lunch and like talk about you know oh i'm this guy we're doing this and it's like you go in there you know it's just without the dice and stuff and uh that's kind of naturally it just kind of grew with those friends and those kind of gaming groups with third edition and that's kind of how that started to uh blow up and stuff and my my drawing kind of fell away and it became more map making and oh, sure. like i would draw like a city and be like here's the freaking turrets you know and and write a similar thing write stories and come up with like ideas for this world building and that's i think kind of how my D D kind of naturally uh grew is like uh, for me as a gamer it's like it's kind of like this blend of narrative and and diagrams or art you know i think i probably as i was like less confident with my drawing i kind of lean more into just ideas and stuff because then you can just explain an idea and you don't necessarily have to draw it if you're playing D D. it'll just like it's a big frog man or something Thing, you know oh, yeah. So it's yeah. Like, that's easier it's less yeah <laughs> that's that's i mean that's the one thing with comics is it's like you can build whatever world you want and there's no budgetary constraints to it it's whatever your imagination can put on paper but as soon as you put that down that's your world and you have to stay somewhat consistent to that as far as storytelling goes so when you design a character you have to realize you're going to draw this character like 300 times in this comic book <laughs> series. So you better be happy with the look of the character, the design, the simplicity. Is it going to work when it moves? Is it going to work from every different angle? You know, like vehicles are the same thing. Uh, if, you're, if your characters have a, a headquarters or something, it's like you're going to be responsible for depicting that over and over again. So you kind of have to approach the design of it with all of that in mind you know um yeah that makes so much sense and it's it, that's another thing that i was kind of thinking when you were talking about like filmmaking tricks is like i think you can kind of understand a lot of filmmaking tricks by looking at examples that already exist and be all like okay i can see how i can apply that to this and then maybe you do a lighting or a camera test or something and obviously that requires a lot of work and probably other people like a production and stuff but for the one person that's just like they're trying things but i'd imagine you know for a comic book artist you're like oh i have this idea you draw it it's like no that doesn't work at all but I had to draw the whole thing to find that out or you know maybe you figure out early and then you just keep trying and then you you get the whole thing executed and it's like okay yeah that works and th then like yeah as you said it's like can I do that a billion more times but that's I, you know uh, did you have a defined style early on do you feel like you settled on a style do you change styles depending on the kinds of stuff you're doing or how does, uh, that, how does that work I, I I started to develop a, my own unique style kind of when I was in college, just because I knew that I wanted to stand out from everything else. And my favorite artists, including Rob working on Scud, were so super stylized. Like Scud stood out because it was a black and white comic that was super stylized. And I was also a big fan of like Tank Girl and um, this comic called Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers out of LA. And um, all these guys had very unique styles. So I kind of modeled my approach after that. And I would relentlessly work in sketchbooks to the point where happy accidents started occurring. And 
big mistakes would occur. And I would say, well, I'm going to abandon that. That didn't work. But the little happy accidents that would happen along the way, I would take those, incorporate them into my style, and then keep moving forward to the point where um, when I debuted in like the late 90s with my work, it, it did immediately kind of stand out to people. And that was one of my calling cards of my career is people kind of know now all these years later, oh, that that dude has like a pretty unique drawing style. Like you can kind of tell what his work is just from looking at one image. So in terms of branding, like as lame as this is to say, like that's pretty good branding to have a style that someone could see just one image on a shirt or a can of beer or on a comic book or and be like, oh, that's a, that's Jim. That's one of Jim's pieces, you know? So that was a conscious thing that I, I kind of um, pursued, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's really smart. I think that like, not until very recently have I ever really thought about stuff like that. Like it been aesthetically minded, if you will, you know, Callie's my roommate and she's yeah. very aesthetic. Uh, you know, it, it infuses how she lives, you know, when she buys products for the house, she, she wants them to be her style and stuff. And it's like, it's almost foreign to me, but at the same time, like, uh, I, it's, it's very clearly a good aspect for an artist to have because, you know, you don't have to necessarily engage with market marketing to be like an artist or to be a working artist even but what you are doing is marketing on some level and that's branding and that's what am i you know what is my style what am i adding to the landscape that's different you know and so being able to do that probably organically helps you achieve a lot of goals and kind of stick out right like i, I mean was that conscious you think yeah, i guess it was it was but then like with everything, like things, after you do something for so long, like you draw every day for so many hours after so many years, things just start happening with your work that I noticed I didn't even really have any control over. And all the influences and other artists I'm looking at, occasionally something would happen where I'd be like, oh, I just drew that like um, such and such would draw it. Or, yeah. oh, I have kind of a Rob Schraub thing going on right here with this character. You know, and, and it's not even conscious. It's just after so many years of absorbing art, pop culture, movies, manga, anime, it's like the shit just becomes almost part of your DNA yeah. and it just kind of comes out. And it's funny you mentioned Callie because to me, like she is like a living piece of art. Like right. she is her art and, and her whole lifestyle reflects her tastes and her aesthetic. Like, from the socks she wears to probably her toothbrush, it all reflect. I'm just assuming this, but it just all. I mean, it has to reflect like what she's about because she's established such a significant, um, per like persona in a way, and, it, and it's not fake, obviously, but it's a persona in that it it is her. It is what she is, you know. Right. That's part of like how she goes through life is thinking about that stuff. And I don't know if that influenced her being an artist or being an artist influenced that quality or something. But yeah, it's just that's why it's so interesting because it's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I've been living under a rock my whole life. And every time I see something that other people are very familiar with, I'm like, what is this? Humans can do this and stuff. But, you know, you seem stylish, too. Obviously, Skull Funk and Draw has like this really uh, this really driving music soundtrack and stuff that uh, Kevin tells me you pick yourself. And so obviously, like, that's a big part of what you're presenting on the show and stuff. Um, do you are you big into music? Uh, have you always been into music? Or how, what, what's your relationship with music? 
Yeah, yeah. I um, just grew up in like a really musical household. Like my dad worked, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and would just relentlessly play records all day long. And I would sit in the living room and just color in coloring books, read comics and, you know, draw. And so I always associated listening and appreciating the music, music with creating, with drawing. So when I got old enough, I started, you know, collecting tapes and CDs and records and developing my own taste. And um, I got into skateboarding as a teenager and, and skating. And that culture has a lot to do with like punk aesthetic, hip hop yeah. and, and the music and fashion all became part of that. And, and um, so all these influences, man, just, just kind of became part of my aesthetic and influence. And one of my big escapes from like my family would be lock myself in my room, listen to loud music and draw, you know, or listen to loud music, look at comic books, you know? So I always associated with music, uh, associated music with this like escape and this creativity. And I started making like mixtapes when I was in high school and giving them out to friends. And, um, you know, someone along, someone was like, Oh man, you make like a pretty good mixtape. So <laughs> The podcast I'm doing, uh, Skull Funk and Draw, is like me literally drawing while playing a mix. And then I also have a podcast called Skull Funk Radio that's on Spotify. That's just an hour-long mixtape. So there's like mm -hmm. 60 volumes of that. It's free. And it's just... It's funny, man. It's basically like me being um, brazen enough to be like, these are my tastes and this is what I think is great. And maybe I can force this on you and, th and you'll think it's great too. But the most rewarding thing is when someone hits me up and says, Hey, that new mix you did, or that new skull funk you did, you turned me on to such and such band. And I never knew about this band. And now I love that band. So that, that I, I like that idea of like sharing culture, like sharing interests, man. I mean, that's, like our world is now so ingrained in pop culture that the way we almost communicate with each other now and connect with each other is through what are your interests? What are you excited about? What shows do you watch? What movies do you watch? What video games do you play? Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, that's for the way sure. humans connect now. It's, it's pretty significant. You know, I've had, you know, I, I, I'm a person who does not watch movies. I have never really watched movies. It's not like I've watched zero movies, but I've watched vastly fewer movies than everyone else. And it really starts to hit you that people talk in movie references like they go, oh, it's like this. It's like that. And then I got into fucking show <laughs> business and stuff working for Dan. And that's all he talks. He's like, oh, it's a romancing the stone thing. Oh, you got a Kaiser Soze. And it's like, I don't know what any of this fucking shit is. But even <laughs> right. again, even before that, it was just huge in my personal life. And I always just felt like an imposter and stuff. But yeah, that's like, you know, uh, or even like Godwin's law being like, oh, every online argument will ine inevitably invoke Hitler. Like all this stuff is that cultural objects have cultural power and a lot of times the easiest way to convey a concept is to invoke that cultural concept you know because it gets it gets the gist of it across you don't have to spend a lot of words and thoughts trying to trying to define something or anything but it's so interesting you talk about mixtapes i don't know just because uh you know 
checking out your show and stuff yeah it's like you're djing it almost made me wonder if you'd been a dj before or is that just kind of like an affect that you developed from putting on like skull funk radio or something uh i tried to dj but i never got the mixing down very well so occasionally uh i I lived in la for a while friends would allow me to guest dj at some of their nights and i eventually would get like booed off the stage because even though the selections were great the mixing my presentation was very raw and rough and you know la audiences are very uh picky very fickle and they would uh inevitably like yell at me to get off the stage but it's interesting you bring this up man because i i have two younger brothers my youngest brother is actually an incredible dj and musician and producer and he still lives in st louis where i grew up and he's like a full-time dj out there makes his living spinning in nightclubs and he's also in a beastie boys tribute band called my posse in effect and they tour around the country and it's a full band three mcs playing the beastie boys and him djing so i took the visual part of like the artistry and he took the music part and um i was sending him cassette tapes mixtapes when i was in college when he was a little kid brainwashing him with all this crazy music and then he took those mixtapes and went out and found all those songs on vinyl and then bought turntables and eventually started mixing and DJing. So he's almost like the manifestation of another me that became an actual DJ. So it, it, it's kind of cool. And, and then to make it full circle, we used to do full-blown parties where he would DJ and then I would get on stage and paint live behind him on like huge canvases oh shit that's awesome so you you have the two food brothers doing the music and art simultaneously and it's a visual audio experience of um assaulting the senses uh pretty fun you know yeah no that's awesome so you were the food brothers and i've seen you refer to yourself as food one was he food two he's dj moff okay so he took the first part of our last name moff and i took the second part the food (laughs) that's so so cool yeah so when did when did food one start showing up uh when i was in college in the early 90s everyone started to experiment with graffiti so i started going out at night with these guys and painting graffiti and um food one just became like my my tag basically like that's kind of a staple in graffiti uh is you have the number behind your name like phase two or you know uh taki 183 or whatever and and i was so i was like food one basically um not a very uh conspicuous or 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 secret name spencer because if any cop ever caught me and saw my id they would just be like well we're just going to go around the city and find every food one tag sure and and blame you with it so <laughs> yeah my yeah. name is a lot better for committing crimes or my my internet handle which is the sixler it doesn't really connect to anything specific you know but yes 
I, I don't know. Yeah, I think maybe that's something cool about the internet is it's kind of freed people up to kind of name themselves with with weird internet handles. You get so much personality and in like I don't know, like it doesn't really tell you a lot, but at the same time it tells you so much. It's just like it, it kind of, you know, it gets some sort of vibe and it's like mysterious and interesting, you know. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's allowed everyone to live this other life and and create a complete uh not fabrication, but just a complete like other identity to put forward into the world. It's it's interesting. Yeah, when I was editing um, Harmon Quest, uh, one of the things one of the better editors we had. I, well, that's insulting. Um, the third season of Harmon Quest, I had a new editor that we hadn't worked with before, and he was way overqualified for the job. And um, he was like taking a pay cut, I think, to even work on the show and stuff. And I learned a ton from him. And one of the things he always used to say was like, "It's important to have a, a safe space to fail." And I think that's true of all creative enterprises, um, just because you know you you, we're so paralyzed by fear of failure and you know you don't want to put out a lot of effort and make it all for nothing you know and so i think that just stops a lot of people in their tracks but online is maybe like a similar place for that you can kind of test out different ways to act in the world you know and it's like it doesn't necessarily i I, nowadays i think you know uh people are a lot better at screenshotting and stuff to the point where you know it's maybe not as safe to fail as it used to be uh this is not a cancel culture rant i'm just saying like I, i feel like you know early internet culture if you were a shithead online like people would just never think twice you know they just there they go whereas now names are connected to uh internet handles in a way that kind of creates a paper trail oh, uh, sure. but yeah but sure. it's just i think it's great I, I i always thought that you know the internet was a big part of how i grew as a person just like uh being able to learn like i just love learning and it's just like all i would do is just uh just read stuff and like if i was ever curious about anything just google it and stuff and that i don't know it, it really affected me i don't know you know how does the internet affect you oh go ahead man. It, and it, it, what's even more interesting is uh i learn from younger artists now on the internet that they'll hit me up and DM me on Instagram or whatever to ask me questions. And then like, I just bought a new iPad pro and I'm learning how to color on that and procreate. And then I'll ask these younger kids about procreate tips and secrets and what brushes they're using. And so some like 20 year old kid in Nebraska or whatever is like giving me advice and helping me with my craft by letting me know like what he's doing. So I think one of the things uh, that's so great about right now and being creative is like, if you don't close yourself off, if you don't say, Hey, I'm experienced. I've got all the answers. I'm a veteran at this shit. I'm an OG, whatever. If you don't do that and you keep yourself open, you can still learn obviously from your peers, but you can learn from some 20 year old kid in Nebraska that is like, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the new, some brushes that I think you might like. And then those brushes aid in me making better work. So, I mean, that that's something, man, that like as a kid, like we would have never known that, that this was going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like we had ideas of the future. I remember my first roommate in college when he got the internet and it was like the dial up and he had to go around the house and be like, no one pick up the phone. I'm getting online tonight. And we're all like, what is this online thing? And he would go online and and it was this whole new thing. And then next thing I know, in like 98, I had my first website and my first message board on my own website. And every morning I'd wake up 
And there'd be new messages on the message board from fans of mine around the world. There'd be like some kid from England posting on the message board. And I was like, wow, okay, so I can just type a response and suddenly I'm talking to some kid in England. This is, yeah. this is fucking crazy. This is incredible. Yeah, and I bet you were telling those fans, ah, you piece of shit, go fuck yourself. I was. I, mean, uh, <laughs> I was like, how dare you critique my incredible work? Yeah, but uh, I was thinking that, you know, you said that you were the beneficiary of this kind of apprenticeship, you know, learning from these these college kids and stuff. And I, I don't know, I, I've been thinking that it would be really great if culture if culture kind of tried to uplift the idea of like apprentice and mentorships uh because it's like such such a great way to learn a lot of complicated things and and i don't know i think society kind of pushes us to institutions because you know it's a whole capitalist neoliberal thing but you know it's accreditation it's weeding out the poor people and it's all this bad stuff it's like and then the institutional knowledge of college isn't necessarily the most valuable part of college you know i think a lot of what you got from it obviously was these connections to these people who were able to help you out and stuff you know it's not necessarily not that college is worthless but you know i i think as this is a weird rant but uh college used to be a lot stricter with what uh, a curriculum was it didn't have this course shopping cart model and the course shopping cart model completely changed the nature of of colleges i would say generally for the better i'm sure there's uh, positives too but it kind of flattened like what an education could be because it has to be able to be made out of all these different things it's not just one course for one kind of degree or something and i think that's changed a lot about higher education but it would be nice if this apprenticeship didn't like cause nepotism because if it's apprentices it's like a lot of people will default to people who look like them and stuff and it would be good to get by that but the cool thing about the internet is just like you're saying and, and even just youtube and stuff like you can learn how to do anything you know uh we very occasionally play like an animation that i made uh on in after effects and photoshop and stuff and i did that mostly by uh you know uh like asking cali questions and like looking up how to right. do keyframes and stuff and i I did it and you know it's not great and I can't draw on stuff but it's like I was so impressed and it's like it, it was I never pictured being able to put something together like that and then I did because I was able to avail myself of you know me, uh, not necessarily mentors but peers not peers you know Kelly's Kelly's not my peer in art um, she's way better but uh, you know uh, but also just the influence of online resources and stuff and I think that's just amazing you know it's it, it lets it kind of opens it up to everyone whereas if oh, yeah. you kind of want to learn it you can yeah it's interesting and i agree with what you said about college and even to the point now where when kids hit me up to ask me if they should go to art school to college i say no uh and i actually had a kid last week say i'm looking at kansas city art institute i saw that you're an alum from there i saw you went there should i go there i said no here's what i think you should do save your two hundred thousand dollars that you would spend on the four years at kansas city art institute Learn everything you can through free YouTube tutorials. Take as many live figure drawing classes you can at a community college or workshop in your local town or city. That's really smart. They have them. Find the best artist in your city or neighborhood and approach that artist and try to learn in person from them, trying to develop an actual apprenticeship with them. Um, and then... What else was my, and those are kind of the three core things of me saying no to college now to young people, because like I said, man, I mean, I was in college from 93 to 97. We didn't, you sort of did have to go to a trade school to learn 
some of the stuff that I learned as far as illustration goes with figure drawing, color theory, um, how to make deadlines, do all this kind of stuff. But now it's 2022. Like you don't have to go to an institution and be in debt for fucking 30 years after you graduate. Save yourself the money is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh. you know, I think you, the the high schools have this kind of natural college pipeline now. I don't know why. I, I, I'm i sure there's money or something. The colleges obviously want to get people in because then they get open themselves up to scholarships from the government and stuff. So that becomes just a government subsidy that they can use. doesn't matter if they're necessarily doing good or not. But a lot of jobs, they just want the accreditation of college, right? But art is unique in that accreditation doesn't necessarily do too much for you if you can't perform. You know, and I, I think for starting people, they want guidelines. You know, so much of life, especially as a young person, is like being told what the rules are, how to follow the rules, what you'll get by following the rules, the guidelines, how society works and stuff. And, yeah. you know, you assume or not even assume you want to believe that there's a similar pathway to kind of success as an artist. But, you know, it's the only pathway is it's like you got to grind and grind and grind and grind and then get really lucky, you know? So it's like, it's like that's what you're saying is like you're, what you're talking about is just focus on the grinding you know focus on making the output get to the level where it needs to be to to start attracting the notice that can kind of get you into places and stuff and right. you know these platforms online give you so much more opportunity to put yourself out there and, and find those connections that you need with an audience definitely yeah and man um off the subject before i forget i, I have a question sure. for you um oh yeah so when i lived in la i lived in walking distance to meltdown comics so I was going down there every week for all the events they had in the back gallery. When Harmontown started, I was showing up, not every time, but most of the time. Um, what, how, did you, how did you start working with Dan and, and Rob with that? Like, how did you become the guy on stage? So, okay. So, what year uh, was that? What, what was that? I can't tell you what year, maybe 2012. It was about a decade ago. I don't think it was more than a decade. I want to say it was maybe nine years. I think like every time I check, it's like nine or eight or something. Maybe Kevin can check. But, uh, you know, there's a metaphysical part of the story, which is like I was listening to Harmontown and they were talking about D&D. And I just randomly got like this very clear idea in my head that was like, wait, maybe maybe if I go to the show, because they talk to the audience, they on the show, they talk about how they talk to the audience and they talk to the audience before the show and stuff. And I was like, maybe I could talk to these guys. Maybe they'd play D and D with me. And that was like a literal thought oh. in my head from listening to the podcast. And I don't know why that was the thought in my head, but I swear to God it was. And that was why I wanted to go to the show. It's not like I just wanted to go to the show. It was like, I was trying to kind of get myself out there trying to like do something. I hadn't gone to shows before. I don't really like loud music so i don't go to like music shows i like music it's just the, the volume really uh, it bugs me or whatever um sure. so you know i just don't i never got out much and i was like let's try and do something else first day i show up on the show they're like we were thinking about playing dungeons and dragons and it's like yeah I, I that's what i was picking up on they were thinking about playing dungeons and dragons it was coming out in their words on the podcast i, I picked up on this correctly and they're like yeah hey, we wanted to play uh first edition or something and uh when they said first edition for for some reason people are like eh. you know la crowds are weird so they were, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. they were they were voicing dissent for to first edition to the point where dan was like well I, I mean we don't know what we're talking about uh, we could do whatever <laughs> you know and then they were like is there anyone who wants to talk about dungeon dragons any dungeon masters in the audience and i 
looked around because of course there must be tons of dungeon masters in the audience you know i don't know but there wasn't um so i i raised my hand and then they brought me up and uh they they wanted me to talk and i guess i was charming enough or something that they brought me back and then i i made the characters and then then they went on the harmontown tour and it wasn't my choice or it wasn't like i was like hey what about me but they were like yeah obviously spencer's coming and so i had to like tell my boss at the apple store like oh i'm gonna take a month off to go on tour <laughs> wow um, and, okay yeah and how, I went how, to did the that, how did that go over well here's the thing there's a lot of toxic apple stores uh with toxic management i don't want to deny that it can be a hard place to work but the place i worked was really good with very good management the store manager knew that i went was doing the podcast um because i would talk about it and you know he listened and he knew what people were doing in their lives and stuff and so he knew it was something i was doing and it was being cool and and other employees were into it sometimes they would come to the shows like not often but it would happen occasionally to support me and stuff and so he was like yeah he like literally said like I really think this is important for you and good for you. And so, yeah, no problem. And, and I think he knew that, you know, it might lead to me quitting at some point, but it's, you know, it's the kind of flyer you take on a person. It's not, that's not what management does these days, you know, in this kind of fucked up evil economy, but I really respect it. I, you know, Apple store taught me the value of corporate, uh, corporate, culture like i worked at borders and i was like fuck the man you know they're making all the books bad and the, all these borders are just these bad people the corporate suits and then i was like i want to work at a small business and then i worked at a small business and it was like the same thing but the man was just fucking greg it's like there goes greg fucking everything up here he goes walking and you know i hate greg and it's like that's the man <laughs> i'm so i could just talk to him greg just yeah it's like okay. i you know it's the same thing but it's like the man was right there and i felt that same wall you know it's like i still can't do anything about this even though it's like a small company and then apple store it was like a really big company and the training was like two weeks it was really crazy and it was like the most intense training i've ever had but it was really valuable it's probably one of the best things i've done in my life i i really recommend people go through apple employee training i think it's a good (laughs) life skill to learn um but it it just like it was really helpful and it helped me learn to relate to customers customers and understand how to defuse situations between people and I just learned so much and it was all because of the corporate culture of Apple thought that this was valid to do it was an important investment of time and money to do this for their employees and it's like oh my god you know if it's not toxic and cynical and, and capitalist like corporate culture could be a value I can see why you know businesses think about this stuff you know of course it's not good Apple's gone downhill a lot since then I mean they're fine but you know it's a lot has changed but you know right. it, it was a really weird story and then after the tour um aaron mcgathy said you know uh if you want to actually do anything you got to move here and so then i just moved here i kept my job at the apple store and then um my roommate who i'd moved in with who was a producer he was like hey man you should ask dan to get a writer's position job writer or writer's assistant job and i was like okay and then i asked dan and he was like well i need a personal assistant i don't need dan and rightfully so i think dan like has a really dire need for like really overqualified competent um writers assistants through all of his projects like the writers assistant do a lot of hard work on all of those shows and so i don't think i would have done a good job at all and but you know he gave me a flyer and i was uh his personal assistant and that that's kind of how i got into that world and then um yeah he pitched harman quest randomly in uh in an elevator kind of setting and uh that's that's kind of how harman quest got made yeah oh okay so I've seen the Harmontown documentary, but so basically 
you're working at the Apple store. You're the dungeon master at the live meltdown show. But then all of a sudden you're being asked to go on tour with Dan Harmon, with these very distinct personalities. It's almost like being invited to go on tour with a band, but you, you're not really a musician. Not saying you weren't qualified. No, 100%. Yes. You're, ju- you're just this guy. And now all of a sudden you're getting on a bus with Jeff and Dan. And th- then your life, I mean, it had to have been a completely different thing, right? It's crazy. It's hard to imagine where I'd be now if that didn't happen. You know, I can't, I truly can't imagine, you know, I was not making a ton of money. Um, you know, uh, my parents would have kicked me out of the house at some point. So like, yeah, I don't know what I would have done. I probably got a roommate or something, but it wouldn't have been good at all. It would have sucked. And yeah, it's really, really crazy. But yeah, for me, I just always felt like a, this is negative, but like a sideshow. It's like Harmontown always had audience members that would come up and talk on stage. You know, that was kind of like a, feature of the show and so that was me of course you know i was an audience member who got to come up on stage and you know sure i did it almost every episode but i never really thought of it as anything more than that even on the tour i was like you know yeah no there's just because we do this segment and how would we do the segment if i wasn't there you know it wasn't like i'm a value add you know yeah, it wasn't yeah. like I'm, a, I'm part of the gang but seeing the audience reaction you know they definitely didn't think of it that way they thought of me as like a performer on the show and i had to learn a lot of things i had to learn an autograph i had to learn how to smile in pictures i hate taking pictures and i hate smiling and i hate smiling in pictures but you can't explain that to like a gleaming eyed fan you know you just have to like figure it out really quick and it was really crazy and um and it didn't really hit me until like pretty far after the harmontown tour honestly where that was like no i'm like in this like I'm part of this um, group, you know, and I, I belong here. It was it was crazy. I'm also not, you know, a performer um, by any stretch, or I wasn't at least, you know, I've, I've kind of sat on stage enough to maybe call myself a performer at this point. But, you know, I just never, uh, I never thought of myself that way. I was always terrified of stuff like that. But dungeon mastering is a performance of sorts. And that was what I was called to do. So I just got to lean on that experience as I slowly got comfortable on stage. And that I think was a very gentle and helpful learning curve and then you know there's real pros to kind of learn from and be funny you know uh and and learn learn a lot and so yeah i really value that gentle learning curve you know i think there's a lot of circumstances where if i there's a lot of points in my life where if the learning curve wasn't quite that gentle i don't know if i would have uh been able to handle it you know i i i I, i'm bad at rejection i i break down easily you know i'm easily i i think of myself as like uh you know those boston dynamics robots that you kick them and then they don't fall over like i would be like 20 feet flipping head over heel like at the lightest tap that's kind of how i think of myself i just get knocked over very easily so to speak right you know um but and i still do you know maybe if i was uh more comfortable with that stuff before i kind of was thrust into all this you know i might have developed the armor like you did but i think i'm like very barely now starting to develop a kind of like shield against that kind of criticism um but you know i get knocked down every day Everyone's different. I mean, like I said, I was just naive enough to think that I was ready to work for Marvel and DC when I was like 14. So I started sending this stuff in and getting rejected. And so by the time I was in my early 20s, rejection was such an everyday part of the process of trying to become a professional artist 
that eventually I was like, oh, rejection. Well, yeah, that's I've been through this. Like, fuck them. I'm just going to keep going until someone gives me money for my craft. And eventually that started happening. You know, even small things like, hey, do you want to do a little spot illustration for this magazine or this zine? It's we'll give you 20 bucks. Sure. I said yes to everything. You know, we'll give you 50 for this publication. Sure. Okay. And then that eventually leads to, hey, you know, we'll give you $200. And it was like, oh shit, you know, like the biggest check I ever received in my life at that point was when I got my first gig with Marvel in like 97. I was graduating from college. I turned in a big chunk of pages to Marvel and they sent me a check for like $800. And that was the biggest check I had ever received up to that point in my life. And I, I mean, dude, I was doing like backflips off the couch when I got that check. I was like, I made it. I'm rich. Like uh, I can pay rent for the next, my rent at the time I was, I had roommates. It was like a hundred dollars a month. I was like, I've got rent for the next seven months plus food. I can buy a couple CDs. I can buy some new art supplies. Like I am a baller. I've made it. Check me out. Look at me. You know, it was, it was a huge, huge moment. It was, it was really exciting. Yeah. Like it sounds like you had kind of semi-regular moments of encouragement and validation. And also you had a really good approach to failure. I think like it's so important to be able to kind of reframe your kind of relationship to like failure or rejection, because it's like, I think people, especially as you get older, it's just like, well, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to fall flat on my face in front of other people, but you know, it's not necessarily embarrassing. It's like, I'm getting good. That's going to require trial and error. That's going to require error, you know? So it's like, I think it's like being able to work that out of your system probably is like really important to being able to live as a creative you know especially you know uh with uh, a lot of feedback and online you know there's probably artist jobs that don't have a lot of feedback but i would imagine comic books with the letter to the editor or stuff you know have a lot <laughs> yeah. more direct interaction and and also i don't know it's kind of like indie comics and stuff is kind of like punk rock and stuff and that kind mm-hmm. of has this kind of tighter knit scene to it too you know so i think you'd probably i'd imagine you'd get a lot of kind of interaction that some artists might not necessarily get from from the public the same way although they would definitely get them from their friends and family i'd imagine right oh yeah yeah and i mean that's the thing is like i have a tight-knit crew of guys and girls rob is in that group and my buddy mike who uh was one of the guys i went to college with that helped me out we're still super tight but i send those guys the stuff that i'm working on before i show it to anyone else just to say just to get the opinion of like hey am i on the right track with this new project what do you think of these pages what do you what do you think of the vibe that's going on here and mm-hmm. those are the opinions that really matter like my fans opinions like that's cool if they like what i'm doing of course you want to make your fans happy but from an artist's point of view and just technical level i have a couple people that are really close to me that will give me the bitter honest to god truth and so if if i'm off course with anything they're not afraid to say, hey, man, you know, I think you should reevaluate this, rethink this. Maybe you could do something better over here. So you, you, you kind of want to surround yourself as a creative person with people that will encourage you, but also people that will be devastatingly honest with you to keep you on the right path that you're supposed to be on. You know, you don't want just people saying that you're the shit all day long. Like, 
people that are like, oh yeah, your stuff's great. You're brilliant, whatever. It's like, no, I want old friends that I rely on that can give me the bitter truth if it, if it comes to that. Like, I want a real actual opinion on what's going on here, you know? For sure. Ever When I was growing up and in school and stuff, I would peer edit people's papers way harsher than anyone would ever edit mine. <laughs> when oh, I was just wow, like yeah. marking up. Because it's like, yeah, I would want to know where to improve. And I would always be bummed out that it's like, I know there could be some fixes, but people would just not really say anything. And I think like, I think the masses give you a, a certain amount of validation, but especially with the internet, I think it kind of mutes the impact of kind of like fans, positive uh, feedback and stuff. But, but either way, I think like it's a lot more, it builds your steam a lot more and you can take it a lot more seriously when there are people who, whose views and tastes you respect, right? Like, it's like, well, I like his stuff and I think he knows what he's talking about. So him saying something carries a lot more weight and this kind of validation is is a lot more useful to me than like validation from someone who I've never met and don't know. It's not like that's worthless validation. It's just, at least for me as a negative insecure person, it's a lot easier to brush off compliments by people who I don't know because it's like, yeah, but you know, maybe you like a, you know, a milk steak or something. You, know? right. <laughs> you don't know what, what their like. other frame of references are as far as like taste goes. So when they say that you're the shit, you're that's a great compliment but they also might be into something that you don't value or you don't you know think is as good it's yeah and i think especially if you're just insecure it's just really easy to take any escape route away from like doing like having a positive feeling you know <laughs> right jettison um so do you drink soda do you like soda you know i i only drink soda when i mix it in with a cocktail okay what, what do you drink cocktail wise what kind of drinks do you like i'll do a jameson with ginger beer extremely right. refreshing and i'll also do a patron silver with soda and lime extremely i dig that refreshing extremely refreshing spencer yeah the effervescence of like the soda can be uh it can really like brighten up alcohol you know alcohol really punches you and so kind of like taking away from that texture texture can be really nice um yeah i i don't drink it makes me feel like crap but i just by, yeah. by your drink choices have you ever had the forbidden um mountain dew jack daniels combo it's it's a mix-in that's i i love praising but it's more of like a college days drink i don't know if like I, I haven't had that that i used to do jack and ginger jack and ginger mm -hmm. ale um and it was a cool drink to order because you just go to the bar and be like jack and ginger it's easy to I, say yeah i feel like that about jack and coke like saying jack and coke yeah. just to me sounds so fucking cool but yeah. but um what do you call it uh but mountain dew was actually first invented the soda was invented as a mixer for um jack daniel specifically and oh, then wow. it kind of gained its own passing as a beverage i'm sure they reformulated a million times since then but it has this very interesting lock and key kind of uh combination which is very bad but it's obviously a lot of sugar and a lot of caffeine which is very bad to mix with hard liquor we've learned that from four locos the great four locos wars yes. um oh my but God. uh yeah. yeah but what we do sometimes on the podcast is we try soda um and i don't know you know i i don't want to bother you too much uh, uh like to to tell you to prep for the show or anything but you know uh if 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 you're okay with it we might try some soda on the show is that cool of course dude it's your show let's do it 
Speaking of my show, I'm about to make it Kevin's show because I left the beverage in the fridge. Do you want to take over, Kevin? Sure. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So we actually we have um, a, a new song uh, by Jastanod, our, our musician who, who creates all of our music, who created some music for what we call show and taste. So this is the world premiere of the segment introduction called show and taste. You ready for this, Jim? I'm, re- I'm so super ready. Okay, here we go. So it, it's it's show and taste, everybody. It's show and taste. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to Gastonod for the music. Uh, Gastonod, who we should credit every episode, but I always forget. Uh, I'm so sorry, Gastonod. You deserve better than me. But I, I'm all you got, baby. <laughs> so uh, what do you got, Kevin? Did you talk so, about this yet? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, I got a can of the kind of still really hard to find right now, Dr. Pepper Dark Berry. That's some kind of Jurassic Park tie-in. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize I that. that. Nice. What, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I sent a can of this dispenser. I have a can here. Um, I have no idea where to get this. A, f- a friend of mine who's really good at locating weird sodas found this for me. Um, yeah, it's got, I don't know, on the back, I, for the people watching this, it has dinosaurs on the back that says blue and beta on it. And Jurassic Oh, those Park were the, the names of the raptors that he trained in uh, Jurassic World, right? I don't watch it, but I didn't. I did. I never watched it. I feel bad now. God damn it! The Chris supposed Pratt, to be... Is that the Chris Pratt one? Yeah, he was the right. raptor trainer. So those blue and beta would have been his trained raptors, I believe. Okay. Um, the thing is, they brought this back. I wonder if this is from the brought back or this was from the original run because there's no, there's no fucking Jurassic World in in theaters, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's right in, now, it's in stores right now they brought it back they brought it back as a promotion and online they've been saying oh it's a promotion for berries only and using barry manilow as like their their marketing guy and what? so he's like it's for berries only it's it's dark berry mountain dew and it's for berries only and and then they don't tell you where to buy it or something and it's like maybe it really is for berries only i don't know why they'd be showing me an ad and not helping me find where to buy their product but i don't wow. know it dude spencer barry, barry manilow is he's in the ads yeah he's he's like you know you get a celebrity face it's like and he's pretending to like be singing on stage it's like a very tight set that might have well have just been in like someone's room when they put up a curtain or something you know it's very tightly shot um it was shot during covid at barry manlow's like backyard or something it was i would love that to be the case that's the best possible i was thinking much much more cynically but that yeah that would be amazing if that's what happened i was just i was imagining like barry manilow just showing up to like some asshole's apartment and that's like the line producer for the for the show or whatever for the ad shoot and yeah it was just like and he's like what am i doing you know like that's kind of what where my mind went but um yeah so dr pepper has had a red berry kind of variant that was more of a berry kind of style because dr pepper is more of like a cola e kind of beverage but uh you want to crack one open kevin and yeah, let yeah, us know I, what I, you think all right so it smells smell like it. dr pepper i don't i don't really smell a difference from regular dr pepper let's see here i don't know if i like that okay i mean it, it tastes like dr pepper and then there's like this after note three or four seconds later of oh. blueberries but like if yeah. i had just t- tasted it first i would have been oh that's just dr pepper 
<laughs> the soda that we try is really bad, Jim. It's, it's mostly it's bad stuff. It sucks. Um, but yeah, I was expecting it to be blue. I guess that was stupid of me. Um, but it's definitely brown. And as I licked it off my hand, it was like, yeah, that's Dr. Pepper. Ugh, it smells like berry perfume or something. So oh. Yeah, it's it tastes like nothing like berries until after you've already swallowed it. Then you get this just like quick little blast of blueberry perfume. Okay, so I take it back. Everything that I said, I'm very sorry. I'm loving this. Um, it has this kind of twin flavor to it, Jim. It's like you get this kind of Dr. Peppery note and then this kind of strong berry note. But because Dr. Pepper is so complex, um, it tastes kind of like a berries and cream soda. Is that is that making any sense okay. to you, Kevin? That's yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it yeah, does. Yeah, I'm. I'm Spencer, are you? What's your favorite soda? Are you a Mountain Dew guy? Because I've seen your show before, and you were drinking variations on Mountain Dew that I didn't even know existed. Like, where are you part of some exclusive soda club, or where? What, how is this happening? Well, a lot of the soda Kevin sent us from uh, the what is it called Pacific? But what was the company? The exotic Pacific? Soda Company. Ex- exotic Soda Company. So if it was the real crazy stuff, but that wouldn't have been the Mountain Dews. Um, when we started the show, I don't know. I think I needed crutches back then, you know, comedic crutches, and so I would be like, "Hey, Jeff, you hear about this Mountain Dew Major Melon?" Because it had just come out, and then so it became like, "You got to try this Major Melon." And so we got Jeff to try it. And he's like, "This sucks," you know, <laughs> and and so that kind of became like a bit. And then Mountain Dew just kept pumping out new fucking sodas, and they've never made this many sodas this quickly as uh, the time from which we started the podcast to now. And so wow. it's like. Well, yeah, we got to try all these sodas. And then it just became so stapled to our show that, yeah, Kevin started getting new sodas and stuff. And it's, I don't know. I really like food. Um, if I didn't do this podcast with Jeff, I do this podcast with Jeff. I don't know if you're aware. But. Oh, I know. I know. I'm, I'm, I was tempted to wear a suit and tie to, to take Jeff's place. But this is not coffee. I've been drinking the whole show. Pure whiskey Uh-oh. in this. Oh, so okay, so you can handle just uh, pure alcohol, huh? Oh no, well, that was a joke. I, I've I've been around too many alcoholics to not I, take I someone at their word. <laughs> I, I know, I, but yeah, I was like, man, should I have a cocktail and a suit and tie? And then I got distracted, and then the show started. So yeah, I, you know, and it's bad. It's it's good that you don't drink soda. It's bad to drink soda. It's it's horrible for you. It's it's terrible stuff. But you know, I I just like food. Uh, like uh, yeah. Jeff, uh, Jeff years ago approached me and was like, Hey, you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah, do you have any ideas? And he was like, what if we just talk on a podcast? And I'm like, I think you need to have more of an idea than that. And then I pitched some ideas and I don't think he liked them. And then we kind of just dropped the discussion. And then I was so fame starved by the uh, starved by the next time he asked that I was just like, yeah, fucking sure. But I didn't really want to do the, uh, a podcast that didn't have a premise because I kind of want those hooks to kind of, and also it's good for structure of the show. It sets up expectations for the audience. There's a lot of communication theory, why it's good to have a theme. Um, but you know, whatever. Uh, but at that point, I was just like, yeah, get me back on stage, you know? And so uh, we started doing the show, but I would never have done the show without Jeff's ur- urging without a good concept. And I was thinking of doing my own podcast and food was the only kind of stuff I did. And so like, I love talking about food. Um, I, I love soda. And so it just is this kind of natural thing. I think, 
you know, I, I don't know. I hope people find it fun for me to talk about food a little bit. Is food a big part of your life? Or I mean, it you is. know, it's a big part of everyone's life, I guess. But. I love I love food. I love traveling and eating at various incredible spots. I was in LA last week and went to all, I was there for two weeks and I went to like all my favorite local haunts from like Swingers Diner to El Compadre, Mexican spot on Sunset Boulevard to where else did I go? I, I, you know, countless spots, man. I mean, LA, obviously incredible food town. So you can get anything you want there. And, uh, but yeah, dude, food, it's crazy. Cause when I was younger, food was just something I needed to survive. Obviously. Sure. So I would just eat like peanut butter sandwiches every day. I didn't give a shit. Yeah. And cereal in the morning and then like peanut butter. And, and then when you get older, you realize like what a sensory experience food can be and how it's like such a social thing. It's like humans get together to eat food and, and bond that way. So it, it's a, it's a huge part of socializing as well. You know? I'm a really antisocial person. And also naturally on top of that, I have a lot of aversions and weird peculiarities that happen to also be specifically antisocial in their own ways. And food is one of those ways. Um, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, this is maybe part of why I don't even like movies, but I guess it goes deeper than that. But when I was a kid, my friends were delinquents and I would be like the least delinquent of them. And I would barely be able to handle it mentally as an insecure, scared child. And um, so we'd go to the movies and they'd fucking throw popcorn all over the place and oh, and make a mess and make noises and try and smoke weed and stuff and i would just be mortified and it's like okay i'm not gonna go see movies with my friends anymore and then we would go to diners and they do a very similar thing and then i would be like okay i'm not gonna go to restaurants with my friends anymore and so then i was just like okay if i see a movie it's gonna be alone and that just became not as fun and so i stopped seeing movies but i did have just a great time going to restaurants by myself nice. and so yeah. it, it just creates this weird aversion where I don't like eating with other people. I'd rather eat alone. And just like the past couple of years, I've been on like, you should say yes if people ask you to go get food. You know, well, maybe not the past couple of years, pandemic and all that. But like, right. just my natural inclination is no, I will eat by myself and then we will reconvene, which is like, you know, someone saying like, hey, I'd like to connect with you and me going, no, like, here's a giant wall. You know, right, and I, I'm, right. it's so it's like, that's not specifically antisocial, it's trauma, but you know, it, it creates antisocial results and stuff. And it's a, I don't know, you know, I'm a really isolated person and probably stuff like that's why, but it takes a lot of intention and stuff stuff uh to to get uh to that place um did you have a lot of home cooking as, as a kid like my mom was the primary cook and she was okay but i don't think she would ever say she was like great you know was what was your food like yeah like at home? I, I had a similar thing like my mom basically cooked every night for dinner my dad would get home like traditional midwest family style and we would have decent meals but the real treat was you know like once every two or three weeks we'd have mcdonald's We'd have pizza. We'd go out and go to a restaurant or um, in the Midwest in St. Louis, Shoney's Big Boy was like a big thing. Yeah. So we'd go to Big Boy like once a month. It was like a whole family thing. And um, so th those things are, those were like what we considered treats, you know, when we were kids. But um, it's funny you mentioned the movie thing because I prefer going to movies alone now when I go to the theater just because I don't want to have to like fuck with anybody. I just want to go and experience the thing on the big screen. And I don't want anyone around me and being a freelancer. I can go like 
on a Wednesday afternoon when there's just two people in the theater. Like yeah. that's how I went and saw the Batman. It was just like Tuesday afternoon. And there was one other guy in the theater. And we were both like, don't sit anywhere near me. I won't sit, sit anywhere near you. Let's just watch the movie and shut the fuck up and enjoy, you know? So yeah. When you get older, man, it's kind of cool because you can, you get to make obviously these decisions for yourself. So with the eating out thing, I'm the same way I can eat out socially, but I can also go out. Like I go out every uh, uh, day for lunch, treat myself to lunch and I'll go for a walk and go to some food carts or whatever and sit outside if the weather's nice and eat alone and just kind of reflect on the day and what I need to do as far as work goes when I get home or whatever. And it's kind of a, almost like a meditative thing of food. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to talk to anyone. Let me just enjoy this experience of feeding my face. And then I'll walk home and like get back to the world or whatever. So that's quick question, quick question yeah. for you though, man. If people invited you out to socially eat, and the food was something that was so enticing to you. The restaurant was like one of your favorite things. Would you, would the food lure you to, to, to say yes? Like, you know, yeah, for sure. That's okay. kind of like it. And it's, it's also like, I, I, I think of it more the opposite way. Whereas if someone's like, Oh, Hey, you want to go hang out? We're going to have sushi or something. I'm like, no, I don't want to eat sushi. So it's like, I'm not going like, right. it's like, I will never go unless like the food that's another part of it. I, I don't know where that developed, but it's like, no, I want to eat what I want to eat. And if I, if other people want to eat something else, then I will just go do that instead. So it's like, yeah, it's the only thing that will make me go to a thing as if the food is like really the exact thing I'm, I'm craving in the moment. Yeah. But I had ADD and stuff. Uh, I still do, but I, you know, so I couldn't really focus on movies very much, especially when they're on TV. And so I just was like, yeah, I don't like movies, but in the, uh, after the pandemic kind of started, uh, waning the first time before Delta and Omicron and stuff. Um, I went and I saw Venom 2 and I saw the Eternals and I and I saw them, you know, early morning, like 11 a.m., no one else in the theater. And it was fucking awesome. And, you know, the giant screen, it captures your attention in a way that's very hard to on, on a TV and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't hate movies. I hate other people <laughs> like this is yeah. the fucking best. Yeah. And I really am sad that I, I at least at this point, like, don't feel safe seeing Sonic 2 or seeing um, my friend Michael Waldron's uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Man this movie um and i really want to see him so bad but uh, the, the right now we're on ba5 there was ba1 ba2 ba3 ba4 and ba5 and ba4 and 5 are much much worse and no one's talking about it and so i'm like yeah i gotta i gotta be hiding but i did see batman on on the tv i saw dune on tv on hbo max and those were fucking great i really enjoyed them and so yeah i'm like yeah i like movies i don't know why i thought i didn't like movies this whole time it's it's awesome i don't know maybe you don't like people constantly talking about movies because that is one of the things that like people constantly talk about what shows are you watching what movies are you watching and eventually it becomes like can, can we talk about other shit like i don't you know uh it's weird man i feel like i'm really behind because people are mentioning shows now every time i socialize and i don't know what these shows are like i haven't Hurt. There's too much content, as you probably know, and yeah, people will be talking about shit now, man. And I'm like, I I don't know what that is. I don't even know what streaming channel that's on. 
I, I know some shows, but you guys are talking about all these shows. When do you have time to watch this much television? It can't be possible, man. I think people are making these shows up, Spencer, and fucking with me is what I'm saying. They're just kind making of up titles and they're fucking with me, I think. They kind of are, but it's the it's the networks that are making up shows. They're like, we just need twenty billion shows. So, like, what's just an idea? Fine, make it. You know, it's just like they got to get stuff on their channel so they can get people to subscribe and stuff. So, I think it it kind of does have this. Is that even real kind of quality that probably didn't exist in the past? Um, but also just like the siloing of audiences. It's like, oh, this only needs to appeal to like. British mystery thriller fans. And so it's like, if you aren't in that ballpark, you're like, yeah, why would I have ever heard of this? But um, yeah, as our countdown nears completion, I think we're running out of time. So do you have uh, any anything to plug, anything you want to talk about? Um, and oh. yeah, uh, before we kind of call it here, um, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, I'll plug uh, real quick. I've already plugged this on my show. My Skull Funk listeners are tired of me talking about this, but I did make a new comic book series this year, guys, called Girl Scouts Stone Ghost. All six issues are available at your local comic shop. Check that out if you can. And you can buy books and stuff from me, jimbafood.com. And uh, Spencer, thank you so much for having me, man. It was great talking to you. This is great. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, we got to have you back sometime. sometime. Anytime, I'm sure. Man. The audience is like, oh, Jim Mafu's got to be the next co-host. Every time we have a good guest, everyone's like, he should be the co-host. It's a, a really strange thing, but it's an it's a compliment to be sure. Um, but I'll so get that suit and tie then. I'll, I'll make the suit and tie happen. There we go. Yeah, you could you could actually bring a coffee cup full of whiskey. I think is a, a much more acceptable <laughs> I just, thing. On I start co-hosting with you, and I just become an alcoholic. That is just annoying to everyone. Not that I'm that, saying yeah, that's Jeff. I'm, not, I'm just saying it would be fucked up and funny if it happened no sure. that's the effect i have on people i drive them to drug you <laughs> <laughs> i got a twitch channel no i don't I, I yeah i do have a twitch channel i don't talk about it twitch.tv slash the sixler but i do a streaming DD show called uh big dogs DD that's usually on tuesdays um twitch.tv slash frank howley but i think we're in kind of a dry spell so yeah i uh, just go to my patreon then patreon.com slash the sixler i do DD stuff i do food reviews um i do soda reviews uh i'm making videos on youtube now that are mostly related to DD stuff but who knows you know i don't know uh, check out my patreon get in the door you know it's uh give me money i don't know um but uh what about you kevin you got any big big things uh, if you're watching this live on TrobHomeVideo.com, coming up next is the best channel 101, followed by a new episode of Real Life Sci-Fi, and then a repeat of one of the more recent uh, found traps from Rob Schraub. And then next week, we have a whole new lineup of new shows. So if you're listening to this podcast, check out TrobHomeVideo.com on Sunday evenings and watch us live. <laughs> and Kevin sounds really excited about all that information. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm that's trying to Kevin... read off a stream without yeah. looking like I'm reading off a screen. No, that's how Kevin expresses his love. Uh, you know, it, it's good. And I, it was very fucked up of me to, to call him out for it. But hey, I'll do anything for a cheap laugh. But uh, yeah, so that's our show. Thank you so much again. Um, now, any real final thoughts before I really just close the show? Nope. nope. All right. I don't know why I asked. It's a stupid question. I, I'm still learning how to do this, you guys. Uh, but You're doing yeah, great. So, You're doing great, buddy. <laughs> thanks. But we like to end the show with the same thing every single time. So as always, uh, bye, everybody.